This is Dennis Ramondi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg, our podcast and YouTube channel, Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com. Uh, it is uh, early June to 2021. Uh, hopefully, we're getting through this pandemic quickly. And I want to begin by thanking everybody out there that has contributed to help keep us on the air. We are uh, not a nonprofit. It's not a, uh, a, a, a tax-deductible donation if you support us, but we are free and available to everyone, and we want to keep it that way. And uh, we are extremely excited about the guest we have today. His name is Dr. Norman Rosenthal. He is a clinical professor of psychiatry at Georgetown Medical School and was the psychiatrist who first described seasonal affective disorder and uh, pioneered the use of light in its treatment during his 20 years at the National Institute of Mental Health. And I want to say that uh, thank you to Dr. Norm, because he, uh, uh, some of a close friend of mine, was tremendously helped because of uh, Norm's, uh, Dr. Norm's discovery and uh, really alleviated uh, stress and anxiety and discomfort for many people worldwide from that. Uh, he is multi-talented and uh, we are on the show today, I think mostly to focus on his new book, Poetry Rx. I love the title, uh, Poetry uh, in Its Medicinal Form. And uh, so thank you so very much for taking the time to come on with us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, Dr. Norm, as we've been advised to call you, um, tell us a bit about uh, your background uh, relevant to uh, both your new book about poetry, the uses of poetry, and uh, our orientation as a show about uh, contemporary spirituality. So tell us about your journey to your profession and your interest in poetry and spiritual subjects. Well, briefly. <laughs> I trained as a doctor and then I trained as a psychiatrist. So I come up through a traditional medical background, but I've always been interested in the human mind in all its dimensions, including its spiritual dimensions. And to me, words have always been very important. They've been important in terms of what they mean and what they convey, the ideas and the thoughts, great profound thoughts that have been handed down to us through all our different traditions, but also the sound of words. They have a special sound, a special capacity to charm and soothe and enliven us. And in poetry, we have a convergence of words as messengers of ideas and words as sounds. And we also have rhythms, we have rhythms, we have cadences, we have tones, we have all kinds of things. Language is very, very rich in terms of how we use it and what we hope it will accomplish. So if we bring all those things together, my background as a doctor, as a psychiatrist, lover of words, lover of ideas, it all comes together in poetry. So this particular book, Poetry Rx, blends those different concepts together in a way that I hope will heal, delight, enthuse, enliven the reader. I, I was going through the book uh, last night and really enjoying it and, and thinking to myself, actually, 
of different periods in my life when I went through certain uh, um, trauma or strain or, or, or anxiety. And uh, there were specific poems in the book that, uh, that, uh, that would have been appropriate, especially appropriate to read at those times. Uh, you're a psychiatrist. You've, um, I'm sure, like all psychiatrists, prescribed uh, uh, medicines to people to help them get through these difficult times. Uh, it seems your book is a, and in the title, Poetry Rx, is a form of, of, of uh, non-toxic medicine to give to people when they're going through these uh, periods. Have you had that experience where you've actually had people that uh, were seeing you as, as uh, in, in a clinical, clinical setting where you prescribe for them to read certain things, poetry, uh, to uh, get through those times. Absolutely. I mean, just before, just earlier today, a young man who's grieving the death of his brother. And so I'm sitting here with him in his grief. And what can I really say to him? I certainly am not going to give him a medicine to deal with grief. So I said, well, let me read a couple of poems from, from the book. Is that okay? He says, yeah, yeah, he welcomes it. And I read him a poem by Christina Rossetti called Remember. And in fact, I had not planned to, to do this, so I haven't got it all teed up, but may I, may I read it to you right now? Absolutely. Remember by Christina Rossetti. Remember me when I am gone away, gone far away into the silent land, when you can no more hold me by the hand, nor I half turn to go, yet turning stay. Remember me when no more day by day you tell me of our future that you plan. Only remember me, you understand. It will be late to counsel then or pray. Yet if you should forget me for a while and afterwards remember, do not grieve. For if the darkness and corruption leave a vestige of the thoughts that once I had, better by far you should forget and smile than that you should remember and be sad. Thank you. That's great. So. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the thing, if I may say, the thing about that poem that really did so much for me is the idea that even after we die, we live on in the minds of people who mm -hmm. loved us, who thought about us, who cared about us. And here, somebody who is obviously alive is trying to inculcate that sense of immortality, if you want to think of it that way, in the mind of her beloved, and really tell him, you can remember, you can remember me. Let, let memories of me be a joy for you. But at the same time, that's what she does in the first part of the poem. In the second part of the poem, she says, you know, I understand you're going to need to move on. And if you should forget me for a while, it's okay. I would rather that you be happy and forget me than that you should be sad and grieve. Very, very wonderful spiritual poem, if you want to put it in those words. 
it reminds me of a song by the late uh, rock and roller Warren Zevon that I first heard at a memorial service. And it's, uh, it's keep me in your heart for a while. That's beautiful. Um, yeah. Um, I'm curious about your choice of poems. There are 50 in the book, and we should tell readers it's a substantive book because each poem is uh, accompanied by uh, your commentary and <clears throat> biographical information about the poet and, and context for the poem. And I'm curious about your choices because there are some that are sort of the usual suspects, uh, Shakespeare and uh, Dylan Thomas and you know, the people most of us read in school or revere, and some unknown poets or lesser known poets. Um, and you also organized it by theme. So I'm curious how, how you made those choices and, and, and what went into, uh, into those choices. Well, one thing that unites all of these poems is that they all, in my view, have the power to do what the subtitle of the book promises, to heal, inspire, or bring joy. So they all have that capacity. They're not obscure in that way. Um, many of them have been personally very helpful to me and also to my patients or people that I know. I have, you know, once I realized that there was this capacity that poems had, I would say to people, has any poem done that for you? And so on and so forth. And there was no shortage. People were, came out of the woodwork, to use that unpleasant phrase, but they came all over the place to tell me these poems have really done so much for me. And so I looked at the poems that had really helped people that I knew one way or another. And that was the basis for my choice. Interesting. Uh, when I first went through the book, I was thinking of myself and uh, people my age uh, uh, or, you know, certainly well into adulthood uh, benefiting from it. But then I thought, you know, some of these poems, some of this guidance that you provide in the book, I could have really used uh, in high school that younger people could use. And I think that this is the type of book that I would not only want to introduce to um, folks from my generation or people that have had a lot of life experience and maybe have gone, experienced a lot of loss as you get older, you experience more and more loss, but to really um, to present this to younger people, both for what they're currently going through, hey, there's ways to deal with grief other than popping a pill or sadness, or you even talk about getting over a breakup, uh, which, which most young people or all ages experience at one time or another, uh, of introducing uh, uh, this to them as, as not only enjoying a poem, but a, a, in a, a, it's therapeutic and, and getting that thinking into them. And it's a, a tool they can go back to throughout their life. Have you thought about introducing it to younger people as well? I would really love that. I would really love that because a lot of these poems or some of these poems I first encountered in high school. Right. And yes, so I, I have definitely thought that, that, you know, 
when you see these poems standing starkly on the page of an anthology, there's something great about that because it allows you to put a lot of your own thinking into the poem. But the other side of it is that I've taken my life experience as a, just as a human being, but also as a psychiatrist, as a researcher, I've taken that life experience and try to illuminate aspects of the poem and show how particularly it can be helpful. In fact, in every chapter, I first present the poem so that people can just experience it fresh without any prejudice. And then I explain what do I think of the poem? How, what does it mean to me? And then I give them some actual takeaways that you can take away from the poem. And then finally, I talk a little bit about the biography of the poet. So let's just take, for example, the poem Remember that I just read to you. I talk about, for example, this idea that there are the dead are with us. And as I talk to people, they would tell me, yes, you know, I, I remember this aunt of mine who had such a witty way about her and some of the funny things she said. And as the person would remember the aunt, she would start smiling and laughing. It was clear that at an affective level, that person was still with her. So suddenly I became aware of all these people. And, and a, a friend of mine said, you know, he had a great friend and that friend is still with him. And then he commented wryly to me. He said, you know, just because people are dead doesn't mean you've got to kill them. Uh, <laughs> and so the, death, the dead kind of live. And then I thought of, of my own mother. And when she was declining in her old age, how she wanted to bring a little bit of her vibrancy into the lives of her children and her grandchildren, etc. So she got them to choose wool colors and then knitted them afghans from the colors that they'd chosen so that they could continue to illuminate their homes and bring joy to their lives. And it really made me realize that she was really a, a very bright woman, that she was wanting to give her love and her warmth as a blanket does and her vibrancy as the colors did even after she was gone, she was basically cultivating this living on of people who have passed. And then when she finally died and we went, my sisters and I went over um, and started sort of sorting out her affairs. With her will, she had left an undated note addressed to the three of us, just wishing us well. Sweet was almost like she was sort of talking to us from beyond the grave in the kindest way. So those are some of the ways in which I infuse into each poem something either of myself or of people I've known. Maybe they were patients, maybe they were friends. I bring them into the discussion. And then I just summarize what are the takeaway points? What can these poems tell you? And finally, just a little bit about the bio of the poet. Christina Rossetti was a remarkable woman. She was of an upper middle class uh, standing, but she would go and help reformed prostitutes 
get themselves together again and rehabilitated. And she had a tremendous depth of kindness. The, the book is uh, organized in five parts. Uh, so roughly uh, 10 poems per part. Um, uh, and the last one is about death, which didn't surprise me. The first one is about love, uh, which did surprise me. And what really surprised me was when I saw the, I have to confess, when I first, when I saw the, the breakdown, I said, well, Dylan Thomas's Do Not Go Gently will be no doubt in the death one. And in the love one, I'll bet he begins with uh, uh, Robert Browning's poem about um, uh, how do I love thee, let me count the ways. Elizabeth but you Barrett. didn't, you didn't. You opened with a poem by Elizabeth Bishop about loss, which is a wonderful poem, but I'm really curious why you chose to open the book with it, because you know, I know a, a lot of some thought went into the order of things. Absolutely. I, and I, I grappled between those two, actually. Um, but that was the gateway for me into this whole concept. I was at home late one evening when a friend called to tell me that he'd lost someone who was very important to him. And he said to me, how will I go on? How will I manage? And I thought, well, what can I say to him really that isn't cliche? And knowing that he was a man steeped in the arts, I said, you know, there's an art to losing. And like any other art, it can be developed. And he said, oh, do you know that poem? I said, no, no, what poem are you talking about? And then he pulled it off his shelf and read it to me. And I was, I was hooked. Um, and after the reading was over, I could hear his voice had just kind of lightened and, and he was no longer so deeply gloomy as he had been. And strangely enough, I felt enlivened and um, lifted in spirits from this reading. So that made me think, wow, you know, poems can do this. Poems can cause sad, down, depressed, grieving people to feel better. What else can they do? How else can they have an effect? So that was really the gateway poem into this whole concept. I'm curious. I have a question that's a little from left field, but uh, it was, what you're saying was making me think. Uh, it seems that in our culture at this time, um, there may be a de-emphasis on death and loss and, 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 and dealing with that. And somebody said to me recently, in the 19th century, everybody talked about death, nobody talked about sex. In the 20th and 21st century, people talk about sex openly, but nobody talks about death. And, and, and I just have thoughts on that as a psychiatrist and somebody that, that deals with people when they finally have to deal with loss in, in a very significant way. Well, I think most people who are writing about things want to sell books and newspapers mm -hmm. and sex will sell much better than death. Um, maybe in the 19th century, it was a graver time, but I think that 
for, for me as a person and as a psychiatrist, thoughts of death are very important in, to enable us to live a full life. Because otherwise this specter of death kind of just hovers in the background and we try to avoid it at every turn. And yet it's always there and it's always kind of haunting us and we're always running away from it. And it's not a happy existence. But if we know we're only here for a certain limited amount of time, and then we're gonna be exiting stage left or stage right, um, then we can enjoy ourselves, you know? What's to worry about? We know what's gonna happen. So- Just follow up, Phil, with a question. And that is, it seems to me that what, what you're writing about um, in your book, uh, um, Poetry Rx, it, it's all steeped in, it's all, uh, the, it's all about spirituality. It is, it is about spirituality. It is about spirituality because every one of these ingenious poems is telling us something important about what it means to live what it means to live well and honor our spirit, our emotions, our being in every way possible. So that's why I've chosen quite a large number, 50. I had to cut it down to 50 because there were some things I was dying to cram in. So I, I called an old friend of mine who was a wonderful, a best-selling author, and I said, is there something magical about 50? How about if it's 52, would that be okay? She said, no, no, 50 is a magical number and you have to keep it. Oh, 52 would give you one a week though. Yeah, there you are. I thought so, I, you know, like a baker's dozen kind of thing. Yeah. Um, some of the poems you selected have <clears throat> more explicitly spiritual themes than others. You include Rumi, for example. Um, in fact, you, you included the guest house, which I've often used uh, to talk about um, the importance of not being in denial about negative emotions and experiences, which you see very often in spiritual circles. So I wasn't gonna ask that, but since I brought it up, uh, talk about your choice of using guest house well the guest house is such a wonderful poem for teaching such an important lesson and that is to welcome your emotions not just accept them welcome them as he says the shame the meanness the malice greet them at the door laughing they may have come to clean you out of of your furniture to let you experience some new delight what a wonderful philosophy to welcome because even, even um, bad things teach us. I had an earlier book called The Gift of Adversity. Even adversity is a great teacher and it's going to come anyway. So welcome it and see what it has to teach you as a human being. I, I, I also wanted to ask uh, you, your pioneering research in uh, seasonal affective disorder. Uh, often season comes, people go into de depression. And uh, this is actually, you are the, the man in this area. Uh, you are the person that coined that phrase, seasonal affective disorder. 
have you found poetry helpful for people? Perhaps not poetry just by itself, but is that something that you find uh, very helpful for people de dealing with seasonal depression? Well, I can't say specifically because I haven't used it specifically, but when I was recruiting my very first cohort of patients with seasonal affective disorder, that was in the early 1980s, I opened an envelope, somebody had sent me a letter and out of it tumbled uh, a wonderful poem by Emily Dickinson, which describes so very beautifully seasonal affective disorder. And people had been very skeptical of seasonal affective disorder, but there it was, it tumbled out. And I thought to myself, wow, you know, this woman really knew it. She knew it intimately and viscerally. Mm -hmm. So um, I will read you that short poem, if I may. Please. And we will see how she presents it. Here it goes. There's a certain slant of light, winter afternoons, that oppresses like the heft of cathedral tunes. Heavenly hurt it gives us. We can find no scar, but internal difference where the meanings are. None may teach it any. Tis the seal despair, an imperial affliction sent us of the air. When it comes, the landscape listens. Shadows hold their breath. When it goes, Tis like the distance on the look of death. Wow. So when I read this poem, I thought, wow, this is real. This thing really exists. All those naysayers, the skeptics, they're just wrong. So um, in, in fact, that turned out to be the case. And then when we brought these patients in to our, into our ward and followed them, they started off being very cheerful because we brought them in in the summertime. And then we let them go through the winter and we were going to expose them to light. And people said, well, what happens if they don't get depressed? And what happens if they don't respond to the light? And at that point, we, when we started the light, one of the patients came into the ward just glowing and said, this is amazing. This is just absolutely transformative. And so I just felt like something that I had read in a poem by Keats. And um, let me find it for you because that was another revelation about poetry and what it can teach us. Here we go. Much have I traveled in the realms of gold and many goodly states and kingdoms seen. Round many Western islands have I been which bards in fealty to Apollo hold. Oft of one wide expanse had I been told that deep browed Homer ruled in his demean. Yet did I never breathe its pure serene till I heard Chapman speak out loud and bold. Then I felt like some watcher of the skies when a new planet swims into his ken, or like stout Cortez 
when with eagle eyes he stared at the Pacific and all his men looked at each other with a wild surmise, silent upon a peak in Darien. So this poet, when he read a new translation of Homer, he got so excited that he felt like he was seeing some, something amazingly new in front of him. And then he thought of the, the astronomer Herschel, who had just discovered Uranus, the planet swimming into his ken, or like a South American conquistador when he first saw the Pacific. And that's how I felt when I first saw that first patient respond and come out of her gloom just from light. And all the nurses were staring at each other. And as I say, maybe not in wild surmise, but certainly they were very delighted, as was I. You put me in mind of when I lived up the road from where Emily Dickinson had lived in Massachusetts and the arrival of spring and how glorious that was. And I'm, I'm, I'll bet for her it was, <laughs> it came with that same uh, power of light. I, I wanna say I spent part of the year in Sweden and uh, I know what that transformation is like when they go from dark, dark to light, light. And it's just- uh, They nope. go crazy, they, they go crazy. I remember I once asked a Swede, it was at the very start of seasonal affective disorder, I said, has he ever seen it in Sweden? He said, well, let me put it to you this way. Either nobody has it or everybody has it. <laughs> the latter, yeah. Um, talk to us a bit about what the reader or listener brings, the importance of what we bring to the poem. Well, the yes. consciousness we bring, how we read it, uh, it seems to me, in my experience, the more contemplative we are when we read it, the more uh, quiet the mind is, the more we reread and reread again because there's so much mystery in a good poem and so much opportunity for different interpretations. So speak to us about that and um, the added value perhaps of hearing the poem because now in our YouTube age people can hear often you know great readers or even the poets themselves. Uh, I had the experience of, of listening to Dylan Thomas read his work and it, it was just so different <laughs> from the written word on page. So Talk to us about what we can do. Yes, yes. All of the things that you say are so important that the, the reader completes the poem. Um, and, you know, I may have some interpretations of the poems, but it's really what the reader sees in it that really matters. I'm just giving some suggestions, but the reader's response is what really matters. And I give in the introduction ways in which people can get the most out of poems, including some of the things that you've mentioned. Read it aloud. We then use extra muscles, extra neuronal circuits to experience the poem as compared with when we just listen to it passively. Incidentally, even then, scientists have shown that listening to poetry gives us goosebumps and chills and influences the reward circuitry of our brains. So even there, 
there's a physiological effect, but how much more so if you're reading it aloud and you hear it and you say it and you see the words and you, you feel the words go through your mouth. It's, it's really fascinating. So I think all these things are really very salient. And of course, I would encourage you to listen to the great poets read their own poetry, including Dylan Thomas reading Do Not Go Gentle, or Emily Dickinson, not Emily Dickinson, Edna St. Vincent Millay. Emily Dickinson was pre-recording. Uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay reads the sonnet that's included here, Pity Me Not, which is a beautiful, brilliant, brilliant sonnet. And uh, I talk about its influence on one of my patients and how it provided her with a, a key to solving some of her emotional difficulties, romantic Thank difficulties. Thank you so very much for your time. Any, uh, Phil, any final questions? And Dr. Rosenthal, any final comments uh, you'd like to leave? Oh, we could talk about this forever. Um, I would ask two questions. One, why you chose, we talked about why you chose to uh, begin the book with a certain poem, poem about loss. And you close, number 50, is do not stand at my grave and weep, uh, which is a poem I've not read before. Why did you choose to conclude with that poem? And what would you like uh, as a final takeaway for our, our uh, listeners and viewers? Well, one thing that I've done in each piece is to just fit the bio of the poet to the poem itself. Because in a way you see how these poems arose naturally out of the minds of these great creative people, but also sometimes people with very turbulent or even troubled lives. And it's useful to understand that these great, you know, life transforming creations came out of people who struggled in many instances. Um, going to your last poem, when a British magazine ran a, a contest uh, for favorite poems, they didn't mention this last poem, Do Not Stand at My Grave and Weep. But nonetheless, people again made it a write-in poem. And they, there were many, many requests for the poem to be sent to them. I think it was 30,000 people requested that particular poem, even though it hadn't been mentioned. At the time, it was listed as anonymous, that they, they didn't know who wrote it. Subsequently, Dear Abby, the, the journalist who was its help journalist, explored it and found out that in fact, it had been written by a Baltimore housewife who had no previous history, public history of writing poems. She and her husband had a young woman staying with them who was a refugee from Germany before the Second World War. And this young woman found out that her mother was dying in Germany and was advised, don't go back, it's very dangerous. So, the woman, the, the woman who'd taken her in, just wrote on the back of a brown paper bag, this poem, 
that has become an absolute favorite for readings at funerals and such situations. May I read it? Is there time? Do we have sure. time, Dennis? Sure. Do not stand at my grave and weep. I am not there. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the sunlight on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken in the morning's hush, I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled flight. I am the soft stars that shine at night. Do not stand at my grave and cry. I'm not there. I did not die. Beautiful. That's a great way to conclude, especially um, for the sake of future uh, viewers and listeners. We're recording this on June 2nd, 2021, just as we in, in America, at least, are emerging from the long pandemic when people have suffered a lot of loss and a lot of grief and still are grieving people all over the world. So uh, that sounds like a very good poem to uh, have in our, our arsenal of, for dealing with grief. So thank you for that. Thank you for sharing poems and insights with us. And um, Bill, if you could show the book one more time. One more time, we will do the thing. Do the commercial thing. Poetry Rx, Dr. Rose, Norman Rosenthal. And, and, and it's a book you will read. And for me, anyway, I'll keep it. And there are times in my life in the future, I'm sure that I'll go to it. All um, right. Thanks again for being with us. Thank you both for your hosting me and uh, all the best. All Take the care. Best.